Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Coming up on this week's show, the coolest Doom mod we've ever seen. A new FPS Resident Evil clone. We chat Die Hard Vendetta and more with Steve Goodwin. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our amazing mates at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books that's definitely worth checking out for the summer is Game Boy The Box Art Collection. This colourful box art collection will serve as a vivid reminder of the time when Nintendo's little grey handheld was as prevalent as smartphones are today. So you can check that out and the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 329, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for our weekly look at everything that's happening in the world of retro gaming and technology and our first show of June this year is flying by. Although, the day we're recording this is at 31st of May. Today's actually International Amiga Day. Did you guys know this was an actual thing that happens every year? There's a day for everything nowadays. I I, I was about to say, are you sure that's not something that you've just made up, Dan? (laughs) No, this is a real thing. I think it's because it was uh, Jay Miner, who was one of the guys who made the Amiga. It was his birthday. So uh, every year, yeah, 31st of May is declared International Amiga Day. It's quite good, actually, that we've uh, seen a lot of news articles about the Amiga. How many people have tagged us on Facebook and Twitter there's an Amiga in Stranger Things. Oh, I thought that was awesome. Like, we're not doing any spoilers. This is in the first... Because I haven't seen it yet. First seen the intro of uh, the new series of Stranger Things, which is an awesome show. And uh, it's kind of reflecting the time period that they're in. But man, I was so excited when I saw it because it was a proper, like, uh, Amiga 1000 and it had the keyboard with the Amiga keys on it. Um, of course, a load of... Mardi buggers on um, Twitter went around and went, oh, the mouse isn't plugged in. Oh, this isn't accurate. <laughs> I, the LED's I, not on. And it's I, like, actually, I smugly sat there and went, tank mouse, that for the Amiga. <laughs> <That's my missus>. <laughs> <laughs> but it only knew because joke. of you guys. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think it's just good that it's actually there and in that yeah. for the time period and that the directors and writers just went, let's have an Amiga rather than like a, a beige IBM box or, yeah. <laughs> or something, you know. And even from the pictures, it looks like they've got like a, you know, customised version of Workbench running on it. It's like quite authentic looking, yeah, I thought yeah. as well. And it's amazing because, you know, shows like Stranger Things, I mean, they've brought back, you know, the popularity of Dungeons and Dragons mm. after that. So many kids got into D&D after the first couple of series of Stranger Things. And, you know, it's, it's uh, it, getting 80 songs back in the charts and that again. So, you know, there's a potential that in terms of retro computing and stuff, this is a good way to get interest, you know, from younger generations. Yeah, it's like um, 
it's kind of like so impactful because it's like we're going to cover this period of time, but they'll cover it really well. Like I remember the last one, they mm. did ham radio and stuff like that. And this one, it's kind of like, oh, look, they've got, you know, BBSs and the kind of, uh, you know, she was dialing into a BBS and stuff. So it's it's, it's really awesome, like uh, to kind of see this technology being referenced and something that would be a bit expensive and a bit obscure being uh, shown in there as well. Yeah, I mean, as if the uh, the prices of Amiga 1000s on eBay weren't high enough already. <laughs> so I imagine they've shot up even more over the last couple of weeks. But yeah, definitely very cool. And just, you know, another example of kind of how mainstream retro gaming and retro computing is becoming these days. So we have more and more news stories to talk about each and every week. And of course, we'll bring you up to speed on the big headlines from over the last seven days on the show in just a minute. And of course, on this podcast every week, we are joined by a veteran of the industry to tell us some stories from the inside, you know, about these games that we grew up playing, these companies that we loved. And actually this week, a really good interview that um, you and I did, Joe. Uh, this is with Steve Goodwin. Yeah, this was a really fun one. It was really interesting because of um, he actually, I wouldn't say the bulk of it, but quite a bit of it was about Die Hard Vendetta because he was one of the, like, you know, lead programmers on that game, which was such a huge game. You know, it was one of the kind of first FPSs for the GameCube, the PS2 and the Xbox. And he kind of goes in really great detail through like the kind of the whole development for it and some really funny stories about how the game started as, um, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but it started as like a speed. It was meant to be the game for speed for the N64 and then it became Die Hard and how, you know, they got the official voice actor for Bruce Willis, but isn't Bruce Willis in. <laughs> like you <laughs> That know, story is bizarre. It, it's really bizarre, interesting stories, but he really goes into great detail about bullet time um, which I thought was really funny because of nobody knew what bullet time was. And one of the managers of the game saw bullet time in the matrix in America and kind of came home to the studio in London and went bullet time. We need to put it in the game. And they all had to kind of figure it out because not many games had done that yet. And you know, the matrix wasn't out in the UK. So the kind of dynamics of how to make it work and everything was really, really, really interesting. And obviously he didn't just work on Die Hard; He worked on loads of early games like Grand Prix Manager and stuff like that, which was really interesting to kind of get that insight on those kind of first kind of managing games, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s. Back then, like, bullet time was in so many games, wasn't it? Yeah. It was like yeah. just every game had bullet time for a while. Yeah, it became, so. became a huge trend. So yeah, it's re- going to be really interesting to hear this one. And I'm, uh, I'm glad you guys kind of did it. And uh, I can sit back and listen and go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, even before that, I mean, he, he worked on... Windows was like the platform that he worked on. Mm-hmm. Um, Edward Grabrowski Communications was the name of the company. Wasn't it Windows 3.1 uh, as well, which we've... Well, he, he was in that interesting time. I mean, he started making games on the Windows platform around 94, 95. Mm. So obviously that was when Windows 95 came in. And it's quite interesting how they kind of straddled both of those. Because, you know, 95 came with a lot of features that made it easier for game programmers. Mm-hmm. But obviously he wanted to have that backwards compatibility as well. So there's quite a few tricks that he talks about, you know, ways that he managed to get games to run on both Windows 3.1 and Windows 95 as well. So definitely an interesting listen. Steve Goodwin is our special guest on the show and he'll be coming up in around half an hour from now. Now, of course, I did say lots of new stories to talk about this week and uh, I can already see you jumping for joy as our resident, resident <laughs> Evil fan, Joe. <laughs> this is kind of a uh, a first-person shooter, old-school Resident Evil clone that's landed for at just £3.99 on Steam. Yeah, so this is Nightmare of Decay, uh, which is really interesting because of 
obviously, what, about five years ago now, we got Resident Evil 7, which took Resident Evil into the first person, you know, from kind of the third person. And this is interesting because of essentially, they've made this game, Nightmare of Decay. It's been made by Checkmatey Studios. They're, they're an indie studio. And what, what they've done is they've got, they've made it look like, you know, PS1 kind of textures and graphics, but made it in the vein of Resident Evil 7. And it is a first person shooter. Um, now they're very close to the wire in terms of ripping off Resident Evil here because of it's a, a survival horror game set in a mansion that you're trying to escape with puzzles with zombies and uh, it, even to a point when you see the first zombie in the game it literally does the iconic zombie head turn from Resident Evil um, so it's really really on the wire but it, it looks like a really fun game like you say it's on Steam for three ninety nine. it came out last week um, I've watched some videos on it and it looks really fun um, but what I really like about it is they've really captured that survival horror horror element because obviously I love the article here on uh, Kotaku. It says, you know, it's a first-person shooter, so don't expect to be like 360 no-scoping, you know, with <laughs> these zombies like yeah. running around like a madman. It's a really methodical, like the original Resident Evils, you really have to think about where you're going to stand and shoot and really think about like your, um, you know, your inventory and like what ammo and what healing items you're going to bring with you and really limited ammo throughout the game and you know, the item menus are very similar to the original Resident Evils. You can only carry so much and stuff like that. So they've really captured that essence. But I just think it's a really cool blend, you know, of kind of like that original PS1 style mixed with kind of like the modern style, which I think is really cool. And then, like I say, they've done it for really cheap. And uh, I'm I'm in a lot of like Resident Evil forum, forums and watch a lot of channels like Residents of Evil and stuff like that. You know, you guys know I'm, like you say, a Resident Resident Evil fan. And there's a lot of love for this game, so it looks really cool. Um, unfortunately, I've not got around to playing it because I don't have a very good uh, PC for gaming, but um, it's all built for podcasting. Um, but I might be able to run this one, you know, with these old style textures and graphics. But um, it looks I was really going to cool. say, it doesn't look too demanding this <laughs> no, game. No, it doesn't look does too it, demanding so. at all. Like I say, it's got that real PS1 look to it. But, um, it does... but you know what? I, I think those graphics actually, because I've watched them, um, I haven't played this yet either, but I've watched the, the video trailer of mm. it. And I've got to say, I think there's like, you know, there's that 10 minutes of gameplay you can watch on YouTube um, and there's, you know, a lot of live streams and stuff too on Twitch. But I think those graphics actually make it seem somewhat creepier. And also the, the audio, I mean, there's a bit at the beginning where it starts and, you know, to get into the story, you eat a poison bit of pizza that kind of gets you into this world. But he's watching a news report at the beginning and just uh, listen to the way the newsreader sounds. Sounds like a good is, remix. Is, 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 <laughs> well, the text is coming up on the screen over the newsreader. Is it Max Headroom? There's just something very unsettling about it, though, I think. It yeah. just kind of feels a bit otherworldly. Yeah, and that, and that's a lot of the YouTubers who I've watched playing it have said it is quite, it is an unsettling game, even though it's got those kind of like archaic graphics um, to today's standard. It, it, you know, I think it's because it has captured that survival horror you know you're not just there with a shotgun with infinite ammo kind of thing you've you, you are running around with a pistol with like two bullets in it and you're being chased by zombie dogs and zombies and stuff like that but that's another thing why i think it's really on the nose of resident evil it's all very similar en- enemies as well mm. so but you know it's probably one of those situations where it's cl- it's really close but it's not quite close enough that they get away with it yeah well, that's the thing i mean it's um the fact that they've put it up there for just three pounds 95 i mean no one's getting rich off this and there's even a, apparently a very generous demo 
yeah. that you can download as well. I think that might be the ten minute one you can play. Um, that's available on Steam now. And you know, we, we, we've been huge fans of indie games. I mean, ever since we started doing this podcast, so it is kind of nice to give these a bit of promotion and uh, you know, for fans of that genre. Mm. And it just seems like you know, classic FPS games. We're seeing more and more of them all the time now, aren't we? It just seems to be a genre that's like really coming back. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well. I was never into first-person shooters like on the PS1 and stuff because I just found them too clunky. And I just mm. found, you know, like, especially before, like, you know, dual analog and stuff like that was really difficult. But but kind of revisiting games, you know, like Doom and stuff like that, now being re-released on Steam and Xbox and, and you know, PlayStation 5 and all that kind of stuff, I've actually got a lot of love for them now because I feel like I kind of missed that genre a bit in the mid-90s and didn't really they, get they into weren't. them. They weren't amazing on consoles, were they, when they very no. first started out? And it took a while to get from that kind of PC transition to, yeah. to actually having decent FPS yeah, on yeah. consoles. For me, it was like I had to play with a mouse and keyboard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, changing to that controller only really happened to me when I think it was Halo that was a real yeah. one that changed it for me. And, and I was literally about to say it was kind of like PS2, Xbox original generation, wasn't it? Is it sixth gen, is it? where I feel like that's where it did kind of catch up with first-person shooters. But it's like Dan said, it's really nice now that people are kind of, you know, paying tribute to that kind of classic mid-90s, you know, kind of genre of, of first-person shooters, but making them with kind of modern controls and stuff. So it's a lot more accessible for like the likes of myself who kind of missed that. So I think it's really cool. I did see they've got a name now as well. You know, what the kids call uh, these classic FPS games. Oh. They call them uh, Boomer Shooters. Boomer Shooters. That's brilliant. <laughs> so, yeah, if you want to play uh, what looks like a good Boomer Shooter, <laughs> and that's available on Steam now, so I'll link that up on our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, the Game Boy Advance, I mean, what a system. I was playing mine the other day, actually. I think I, think I got mine off you, Ravi, a couple of years ago, and it's one of the original Game Boy Advances, you know, with the um, they didn't have the backlit screen. Yeah, yeah. The first generation of them, which is actually a bit of a pain to see unless you're in, like, really bright light. Obviously, they'll fix that later on. Um, but there is, I mean, if you want a way to play your Game Boy Advance games, because, I mean, that was a great system. We've talked about before that really just felt like a, a slightly souped-up Super Nintendo, really, didn't it? In terms it's of, it's you know, quite powerful as well, you know. There's some top, yeah. top stuff coming out for that, yeah. Well, I know there have been, you know, there's quite a big modding community around the GBA, including, you know, um, third-party screens and that kind of thing. Um, but also one thing that people like to do is hook it up to a TV, really turn it into like a retro switch, I guess, you know, so you can hook your Game Boy Advance up to your television. Until now, it's always been a bit complicated. I mean, there have been methods of doing it that require, you know, soldering and all that as well. But there is now a new kit that's coming out very soon. Apparently it could be available as early as July this year, a no-solder DIY kit to allow you to play your Game Boy Advance on a TV and use a Super Nintendo controller. Yeah, well, this is, this is pretty amazing. So what they've done is you actually transplant parts of the Game Boy. You basically take the Game Boy Advance and then you put it inside this new unit and that, that helps convert it into a HDMI machine. But you can also take the um, casing and you can put a new controller board in there and turn the old Game Boy Advance into like a separate controller for this unit. So it's called the Game Boy Advance HDMI kit. And Dan's right, there have been previous ones like the HDMI consoler, um, H- uh, GBA HDMI kit and AV out kit and stuff like that. But they don't seem to support as much as this does. Like this is really interesting. It's got um, Type-C USB 
coming out there and it's also got a, a little a little switch on the back so you can uh change it from four by three to uh, 16 by nine you can kind of choose your output that you want now i don't know what the upscaling's like on this and uh what the quality of it's going to be like but um i just love the actual actual concept that you're kind of reusing every part of the game boy advance in this mm. yeah because most of these kind of things use emulation don't they yeah yeah not not the original hardware and kind of transplanting it and i guess that's also stopping them from getting sued in any way because all you're doing yeah. is you're kind of just rehousing nintendo's product already that's already out there you know yeah and this kit i mean it's been running on kickstarter uh it, i think it finishes the day the show comes out actually it's got about three days to go at the time of recording um the wanted thirty nine thousand pounds it's already on fifty three thousand pounds so you know it's it's hit the target and more um and it comes with everything you need to do it as well which i think is quite good because you know nintendo um they've always used these kind of weird proprietary screws in most of their consoles, you know, to stop people going inside and fiddling with stuff. I remember when I took my N64 apart for a video, I had to go on uh, eBay and buy a special N64 screwdriver you see, to take the screws out. The way that we would do that back in the day is we'd just get like a biro pen, take it apart and get a lighter and then uh, heat the yeah. end up, stick <laughs> it in and it would take the shape of the screw. <laughs> Wait for it to cool down and then you've got like a do makeshift uh, do you pyro. Think with this uh, GBA HDMI kit, that's what they send you. They send you a pen and a lighter. Do it. It says style. it comes with everything you need. So yeah, yeah, well, maybe, yeah. I, I do love the tagline. If you can use a screwdriver, you can put your favorite GBA games on a bigger screen. It just clips together, doesn't it? There's no soldering or anything like that. It literally, yeah, just, yeah. you just clip yeah. the GBA board to the HDMI board, don't you? Yeah, that's really it. Cool. And and then you put the new PCB for the controller mm. in there, so you're still using the other one. Yeah. And it's quite reasonable as well. It's like $175, and uh, I think that's not that bad. Yeah, $110, I think. Isn't it? Oh, 110 for the early bird, and then they've got one with oh, okay. uh, uh, extra style, and then there's loads of, loads of choices. But, yeah, I think it's a, a really sweet idea, especially, you know, being able to play it on a big screen, blown up, in HD, you know, that, that that's going to appeal to a lot of people. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I've talked about it before that I generally always play my Switch on my TV, even though I know that from what I've read, something like, you know, it says something like 70% of Switch owners always play it on handheld or something, but I generally always play mine on the TV. So maybe it's just like kind of the generation we come from where, you know, we had handhelds back in the day, but always kind of that sitting down in front of a television just feels like real gaming, I think, doesn't it? in some weird way yeah totally and also like this this not only uses the original kind of snes pad style you can also have bluetooth pads on there so you can get your ps4 or even your switch pro on and like hook it up to there and it also supports the link cable so you can do some link cable gaming maybe just with a game boy advance just plug straight into it or another one of these units and like daisy chain them up i don't know yeah, I mean, it does look really cool, and I think, yeah, it kind of does open up a library to people that maybe, you know, someone like me has got a GBA, but, you know, the screen's kind of, you know, looking even worse than it was brand new. And you just want a really easy way to kind of play these on a modern TV as well. Like you said, not sure what the upscaling quality is going to be like of it, but I think it is quite promising that they give you the option to play it in either widescreen or 4 by 3 Yeah, and they also have AV um, out as well, which is pretty yeah, interesting. So you can go old school. What, what, what do you think of this, Joe? I'm interested to hear your... I think it's very cool. This. Part of me is just like you can just get a Game Boy Advance player for the GameCube. Um, for some, are they hard to find these They days? are hard to find and they are very expensive. Probably about the same price, if not more, than 
you know, than this, than the, you know, the GBA HDMI kit. However, I think a lot of it is the fun of it, the fun of making it, the fun of building it. Like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, not like Legos for children, but it's kind of like a Lego kit. Do you know what I mean? You know, you're clipping it together and unscrewing it and stuff. It's something I would really enjoy. It is for somebody kind of like me who isn't confident enough to kind of take a Game Boy Advance apart and start soldering it and stuff like that. I love that it just does clip together. And there's obviously a market for it because it's it's hit its goal by like almost $20,000 plus. I, I do think for the fun of it, for what it is, I think it's really interesting and fun. Did you ever have like the Game Boy players for... Um, I had the Super, Super Nintendo, Nintendo one, one and like the N64 right, yeah. one that came with Pokemon, but uh, Pokemon Stadium, but I didn't ever have the uh, the GameCube one because it was just, it was always expensive. It was just a rarity as it was. And obviously the main thing with the Game Boy Advance player for the the GameCube is is it doesn't, most of the time when people buy it, it doesn't come with the boot up disc because that's actually the hard part to find. It isn't the hardware that plugs onto the bottom of your GameCube. It was it was actually the disc that seems to be the hardest part to find. Um, so maybe this is the solution, you know, for people. And, who and are... I, I think this might be hackable as well because it's got an ARM processor in there as well. Yeah, we'd rather get it hooked up to the internet now in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so yeah, if you want to get hold of that, it's only available on Kickstarter now by the looks of it, but that does finish at the end of this week, and now hopefully there'll be some made there publicly available. I'll link up that if you want to keep an eye on it in our show notes as well. Now, if we're talking about 8-bit games, of course, one of the most famous on the Spectrum and other platforms as well, um, Jet Set Willy, and obviously we've had a panel with Matthew Smith on the show in the past, if you want to kind of hear the, uh, the backstory on that legendary game. It's interesting kind of how popular Jet Set Willy became, isn't it? I think maybe a lot of people kind of saw that as um, a bit of a demo for kind of how fun platform games could be on the spectrum. But obviously it kind of came with limitations. If you played the original game, um, I mean, it kind of used the, you know, the internal um, spectrum speaker. And one of the big things is, you know, that it, a lot of other games that came after had scrolling, which obviously Jet Set Willy was just kind of transitioning from room to room which in some ways makes it seem quite dated. But now there is um, a new version of Jet Set Willy by CPL Gaming, and they've released this little um, teaser trailer on Twitter that shows a fully scrolling version of Jet Set Willy, a remake of it for the PC. Yeah, I find this really interesting because uh, like when, when I've heard about scrolling development on the PC and stuff, it was always like Commander Keen or that, that, that Sonic demo that uh, id Software did. And there was a, a no Mario demo that it it software did years ago, and it was like I think there was a whole thing about smooth scrolling or scrolling on the PC not being able to be achieved. So seeing someone go back and do it for Jet Set Willy, it's like this would have never happened in the past. But it's it's pretty cool to be playing the game in that total different style, and it looks it looks and feels very different when we you know it, it makes a. It's weird. It it always felt like separate rooms and separate levels in Jet Set Willy, but being able to kind of walk across and have it scrolling across does make it feel like one huge continual building. Well, there's like a two-minute video preview that they've released so far on Twitter. Um, and I think the best bit about it for me is when you get right to the end, it kind of um, zooms out and shows you the entire world. Oh, that's cool. So you can kind of see how everything connects as well. And you can see actually, you know, what, what a kind of big play field it is. You know, there's quite a lot in there, actually. Is it going to work well with, like, jumps? So, you know, I found with a lot of scrolling games, sometimes you're jumping into nothingness and not knowing yeah. where you're going to land. And hopefully uh, it it will kind of be zoomed out enough to, to have that look or it will scroll ahead a bit. 
yeah, if you watch a video, I mean, it's kind of, you kind of get, you know, half the screen ahead every time when it scrolls, when you're not walking right to the edge and then it scrolls. So it does give you kind of enough notice. But I think the way this game was kind of designed as well, the fact that it was separate rooms, it kind of means that you're not kind of jumping into anything that's going to kill you straight away. Most of the time, I mean, I haven't played Jet Set Willy for a long time, but I do remember there were certain points where you would go to a new room and then something would kill you instantly from memory, which I always thought was a bit of a a dirty trick in kind of, you know, room-to-room kind of platform games. Yeah, I I always find it an interesting title. It was... it always seemed really cute to me, like Jet Set Willy, you know, and I think that was, that was the kind of appeal and also the, like, the wackiness of it, you know, like toilets going around and the kind of Monty Python foot and stuff at the beginning. It's uh, It's got that kind of quintessential Britishness, hasn't it? Yeah, and I think it's a game that's just kind of, yeah, I mean, particularly for British gamers, you know, who grew up in the 8-bit era, it's kind of a game that's really, we've taken to heart, you know, and regarded as a, a bona fide classic now, isn't it? But actually, quite interestingly, um, it kind of ties into one of our recent guests. You know, uh, you and I spoke to Steve Weatherall on the show yeah. um, about a month or two back, didn't we? Um, we did the Amstrad CPC version of this as well. Um, and they've actually been talking to him on Twitter um, to ask if they could rework his music that he did for the Amstrad in this version of the game. And I've been following the thread, and actually, because, um, you know, there's a version released on iOS... And he kind of remade the Amstrad music that he did in GarageBand for the Mac. So he's letting them use that as well. So it looks like that's going to be part of this remake for the PC. So it does kind of feel like this could be the, you know, definitive modern version, if you like, of Jet Set Willy. Yeah, I remember there was an Amiga port. There was all kinds of ports of Jet Set Willy, wasn't there? And they all did different things on different systems. But uh, yeah, this seems to be pretty cool, adding that scrolling in there. And uh, yeah, just like the old sound effects and stuff the music hmm, i'm not sure i kind of like the classic music but then <laughs> a lot of people get really scared when it comes on <laughs> just like oh god what's that you know it's uh it's you love it or hate it the chat so willy music yeah and i think it's always nice to see kind of fan remakes of games that you know people grew up playing and kind of get to put their own spin on it as well um not sure on release date on this yet i mean it looks like it's pretty fully featured and you know nearly done by the looks of the previews anyway. Um, not sure if they're going to be charging for it or anything like that at the moment. Um, hopefully it'll just be out there for people to play. Uh, but if you want to check out more, I'll link up that thread in Twitter in our show notes as well. Now, a couple more stories to talk about before we get into our chat with Steve Goodwin. We're going to talk about the um, new footage of a lost Kirby game in just a moment that actually is quite timely because on our latest second podcast that we do, because we do have a second monthly podcast just for our patrons called the Retro Hour After Hours. And the latest one is a deep dive into our memories and kind of the history of the N64. And in there, we're talking quite a bit about um, a game that never came out on the N64, one of the initial launch previews, Kirby Bowl, weren't we? Yeah, we were talking about how that eventually became Kirby's Air Ride, like years and years later for the GameCube. So it's quite fitting and interesting uh, that we've now got the footage of this new <laughs> Lost Kirby game. But it was a really, really fun episode, um, just kind of like talking about our N64 memories. And it was really funny because we st- before we started it, Ravi was like, have we not done N64? But I think it was just because we all love it so much. We we're really surprised that we've gone like 20 episodes of the After Hours without doing it. So it was really, really fun to do. Yeah, so there is a massive back catalogue there. Like Jay said, I think it's like 24. Yeah, 24, now. I think we're on now, 23, 24, which is just crazy that we've been doing it for that long now. And it only feels like about a year or yeah. so, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, if you do want to back us on Patreon this weekend, not only will you get the latest episode of The After Hours, if you're a gold tier or above, you'll unlock all of the previous 23 episodes as well. 
So plenty of listening there for you. And also plenty of other perks too. I mean, the, the normal podcast, we try and give you early on Patreon each week. If I can get it edited in time, you normally get a day or two early. You get it ad-free. We give you around 10 to 15 minutes of extra bonus content each week on the show. We do a few extra stories just for our patrons instead of adverts as well. And of course, you can join us for, I think, my favourite bit about Patreon, the monthly hangouts that we do. And of course, now that we're into June, we have got another one coming up in a couple of weeks' time as well. And these are, I mean, we kind of always describe it as a, a virtual users group or a virtual geek out in a pub, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. I, I always see it as like the pub one, kind of yeah. jumping on with a couple of tins of cider on a Sunday night, you know, having a few drinks, getting a bit, being a bit getting a bit hot on the uh, the last one we did. But I know it is really fun because, you know, we, we talk retro games, but we kind of talk everything retro, you know, retro retro films, retro tech, retro. We always end up on mobile phones as well, don't we? Yeah. And then what's also always really fun, kind of looking at everybody's recent pickups and everybody's kind of collections. And then some, somebody always ends up spending some money in some way. Normally you. <laughs> Normally me um, while we're on there. But it is really fun, you know, and, and it flies by. We usually do it for about two hours. And it literally flies by. Like you're just like, oh my gosh, I've been we've just been geeking out for like two hours and it doesn't even feel like it. So it, it like you say, it's probably my favourite part of it as well. Yeah, so it's it's always so much fun as well. So you get all that, you know, if you support us on Patreon. But really the main reason you're doing it is uh, just to help us keep the lights on and keep the show coming out, you know, because obviously there's a lot of expenses in doing a weekly podcast. So it just makes sure that we can bring the podcast to you every single Friday. And of course, for doing it, you will find your place in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming. And we do have a couple of new backers on Patreon this week. That means you get to hear <laughs> Ravi's lovely singing. Hall of Fame. That is a reason for backing us on Patreon in itself, isn't it? Come on, to Ravi's jingle, especially for you. So big thank you to our latest patrons, and I'll let you boys do this. Go on, Joe. Uh, throwaway. And Paul D. So Throwaway and Paul D, our latest two patrons, thank you so much for your support. And if you'd like to join them as well, all the details to back us on Patreon and join our wonderful community, you'll find it all at theretrohour.com. Right then, Steve Goodwin coming up on the show in just a minute. Let's talk about this new Lost Kirby game then. Now, this is a very short bit of footage. Turns out this is surfaced from uh, E3 back in 2004 by the looks of it, but this is a Kirby game that we never got to see on the GameCube. Yeah, so it's only nine seconds long and it, it flies by. like cause I've rewound it about 20 yeah, times. Yeah, because each frame... It, it literally you only it only shows you like a couple, not even a second of kind of like each frame, and there's quite a bit going on there. Um, and this was announced in 2004 as essentially as a follow up to Kirby 64 to Crystal Shards. And in between that, we have you know the game we mentioned earlier on Kirby's Air Ride, and um, it was being made by How Laboratories, you know, who do the Kirby games. But the, one of the reasons I watched it like 20 times is I was a massive, massive fan of um, Super Smash Bros. Melee for the yeah. GameCube. And the reason I watched it so many times is because I was like, I think this is fake footage because of this. It's just the footage from um, Super Smash Bros. Melee on like the adventure mode. But the, but it's not. When I watched it back like three, four, five times, there's, these enemies that Kirby's fighting aren't in the Smash Bros. game. And like the, some of the level design and stuff isn't in the Smash Bros. game. The reason it looks really similar is the powers that Kirby is using and the moves he is using are from his move set in the Smash Bros. game. And it makes... Well, that was only a couple of years before, wasn't it? It makes it? It sense because like, it's the same system, GameCube, a couple of years before, yeah. and how Laboratory did the Smash Bros. games. 
So it makes sense that they're using the same kind of assets and stuff like that to build this game because if it already exists and it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Do you know what I mean? Like use the same engine and stuff like that. It looks um, similar to Sonic 3D Blast for me. Um, oh, really? Like obviously just the tiles and the way the angle that it's is kind of out. Obviously the graphics are a lot better and it's a lot, yeah. lot smoother, but just that kind of weird 2.5D approach where it's... Yeah. Um, at a set angle and you kind of uh the the wheels in that kind of setup a bit like marble madness actually or, or something yeah, like that you I know see, and, i see what you're saying and then it yeah. goes into real like 2d side scroller style as well and then goes out of it um looks interesting yeah it looks like a, a pretty advanced title as well yeah and i mean there doesn't seem to be any sort of like anything behind it it was just uploaded onto youtube and then it's been spotted by obscure kirby on twitter who have shared it so, you know, it looks like, is it just, it's just from one of the E3s in 2004. And then I guess we just never heard from it again. Like <laughs> we just, you know, elusive Nintendo just ca- probably quietly cancelled it, I'm guessing. And we just never saw anything more of it. I mean, it kind of looks a bit like, I mean, you know, people are saying in the comments here on Nintendo Life, um, that kind of a lot of the elements that we've seen here, I mean, like you said, it's only like in a nine, nine second video. So there's not a lot that you see in there, but kind of a lot of the things that you do see we used in later games, you know, like Return to Dreamland, which I think, you know, from memory, that was all kind of, it was all side based, you know, side on 2D, wasn't mm. it really? And we didn't kind of have, the, have those swapping 3D elements. But otherwise, it does look like there is quite a few things that there may be reused in later Kirby games yeah. that existed in this short demo. Um, but it's interesting to me, and I hadn't, I hadn't heard anything about this before. Some people are saying, is it kind of a, a return to Dreamland kind of beta that maybe would have come out on the the GameCube and it just kind of got developed, which you know would have been a while later because that didn't come out in twenty eleven. I'm I I'm I'm not a big enough Kirby fan to say, but I know Kirby has a long history of cancelled and reworked games. Yeah. Um. And and I think that's just in Nintendo's nature to always make sure that they're delivering the best possible game. And I bet if you pin somebody down who worked on this, it will probably be a case of it. I imagine what you're saying there is it may have been redeveloped into a future game or or, Um, yeah morphed into something else yeah yeah. morphed into something else like i think that's just got classic nintendo written all over it personally we saw that kirby bell we're talking about didn't we that was meant to be a launch title for the n64 like you said got reworked into the gamecube game so yeah it's not not beyond the realms of possibility but it's always interesting when you know someone just checks an old video of something they filmed from a show nearly 20 years ago. Now, hang on, what's that game? Yeah. And I bet they're kicking themselves they didn't like, <laughs> stand there and film it for like half yeah, an hour. Yeah, film but... the entire thing and try and play it or whatever if there was a, a demo of it. But yeah, no, it's just it's just funny when these things just pop up like randomly on YouTube and that there's a dedicated like Twitter page to find this kind of stuff as well. Yeah, and uh, you know the way the community works now. There'll be someone who's got a copy of a, a beta version Buried away, and I'm sure it won't be the last we see of it now. It's out there. So, uh, yeah, very interesting find. So you want to check that very short video, I'll link that in our show notes on your podcast app or at theretrohour.com. Now, we always talk about Doom mods, and um, I think recently one of the coolest Doom mods I saw, there's actually a a Pac-Man Doom mod to celebrate Pac-Man's recent birthday, um, which was very bizarre. I saw um, Alien Breed 3D uh, redone in in Doom Engine, which was really, really good and really playable. And it proves how versatile that engine is. You know, they can do so much with it as well. I think this, though, has got to be the coolest thing I've ever seen done on the Doom engine. This is Halo Doom Evolved. Now, this is really, it's retro Halo running on the Doom engine. 
Yeah, so it's like all the textures of Halo, um, kind of all the enemies, all the guns and weapons, all put into the GZ Doom engine, and it's done so well. Like, I don't know what mods they've been using on this, but like from everything to the way that the bullets kind of travel to the gun overheating and just the movement of like Master Chief, like it obviously plays a lot different to Halo, um, but I kind of love this idea of putting a, a, a total different title into the Doom engine. And, oh, man, it's it's just so nice. I think the thing that's missing here is the kind of open space of Halo, um, where it's, yeah. you know, it's a it was a very wide open game with, like, outdoor levels and stuff like this. And Doom, you know, you've got narrow corridors. You've got, like... Uh, it can feel a bit claustrophobic kind yeah. of going back to Doom sometimes, yeah. But just seeing the weapons here and, the, like, the modes that they've got in there, like the ability to sniper on there and stuff um you know you've you've even got the little hologram that pops up in your hand and stuff it's just like absolutely amazingly done what do you guys think i think it looks too good to be running in the doom <laughs> engine i'm sure it it's is like a leaked halo title yeah a leaked <laughs> halo title halo for the ps like ps1 or something but i think it looks fantastic and i think I think it looks better than Halo, personally. Um, I'm not the biggest Halo fan, and I really love the music they've done with it and stuff. Like, Obviously, it's very metal and kind of inspired yeah. by Doom and stuff like that, but I think they've captured it really well. But to me, it like I know it's running in the Doom engine, but it, it reminds me more of kind of like Shadow Warrior, you know, like, yeah, kind of, like yeah. the pacing of that. And, like, and it's that kind got of like mods like grappling hooks and stuff like that. Yeah, but, um, yeah. The fact that you've got pretty much two shooting modes on the guns is pretty awesome yeah. because uh, that's what kind of Halo's about, you know. I think I think it looks really cool and I think I'd really enjoy it. And, you know, I always find these kind of like gameplay demos, these people are always so much better than me, especially on Doom games. Like <laughs> they, just, they just run through it like a madman. Whereas when I play Doom, I'm really slow, like trying to figure out where I'm going and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, I think it looks really cool. What, what, what series would you like to see? Do you think like Gears of War would be? Really good. Dungeon, Resident yeah. Evil. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the Doom Engine. That's got to be done already. <laughs> Has anyone remade Goldeneye on the Doom Engine? That's got to be I bet somebody will tell us in the comments that they have, but yeah, yeah. surely, <laughs> surely they have. If not, that would be a good one, wouldn't it? Um, but this one, I mean, Halo Doom Evolved, you get 14 weapons and four vehicles from Halo in here as well. Um, you've got stuff like, you know, the Type 33 Needler. And like, I guess the Warthog and stuff like that. Yeah, the yeah. Warthog Ghost in there as well. And like you mentioned, the Grapple Hook in there too. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of there's a lot in here that Halo fans are going to love. Apparently there's not any Halo enemies in this mod, but apparently there's also a separate mod that you can get called the uh, Halo Covenant enemies mod, which brings them into it too. So you could combine the two, I suppose, and kind of have like a, you know, retro, real retro Halo version. Um, and it's available for free too, which, you know, all these mods we talk about. Because the Doom community, even though the game's like 25 years old now, it's probably got one of the most active fan communities of any series out yeah, there. Yeah, like it? even the developments on the engine. So like, I remember the build engine, Duke Nukem one, they've got like 24-bit textures and lighting and stuff. But just looking at this, you know, they've got dynamic lighting. They've got like... The ability to have torches on guns, uh, you know, there's like ricochet of bullets and uh, you're kind of seeing the impact it's doing on the wall. It's really well developed. <laughs> 
Yeah, so that, that just got released this week. If you want to check it out, Halo Doom Evolved, you can get it from uh, moddb.com, and I'll link that up along with the rest of the stories. I do it every week. You don't have to Google around. You'll find it all in our show notes at theretrohour.com. I was checking our um, Apple podcasts the other day. No reviews on there for a while, actually, but, you know, just a quick reminder, if you, if you get a spare couple of minutes just to give us a little rating or um, a little review, I mean, that's a dead easy way to support the show. We appreciate not everyone, you know, can support us on Patreon, but a free way that you can do it that's really going to help us out always gets us in front of new people helps us go up the charts is that just to leave a quick review give us a little you know five star rating if you can as well on your favourite podcast app of choice they're always massively appreciated right then next we're going to get the story on classics like Die Hard Vendetta Grand Prix Manager lots more as well with this week's special guest Steve Goodwin is next on the Retro Hour podcast Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the main event. Then, when we welcome on our very special guest, and I guess this week has uh, worked in this industry for so many different years and different genres and platforms, including working on Windows consoles like the PlayStation 2, GameCube, Xbox as well. Uh, also, massive games like Die Hard Vendetta. We need to talk about Grand Prix Manager as well. Let's welcome on our very special guest this week, Steve Goodwin. How are you doing, Steve? Doing well. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thanks. Um, and appreciate you taking the time to uh, do a bit of reminiscing with us as well. Really interesting stories of uh, your many years in the video games industry. So, I mean, it's always quite interesting to kind of find out from our guests where it all began, you know, kind of going back to day one. What was your first experience of a video game then? Where did it all start for you? It's a cross between the BBC Micro at school, the arcade and the ZX81. Uh, so I grew up in a seaside town which has the prerequisite donkey rides, trampolines, and an arcade. And I would spend various hours in there playing on Frogger, Pac-Man, Space Invaders, and Asteroids. Asteroids being sort of a favorite based on the fact it was accidentally left in free play most weeks. So I got reasonably good at that without having to spend any money, which as a kid is always a good thing. And th- these were good fun games. I still like them. I still think they, ha- they have a lot of value. But it was the sort of ZX81 that 
my parents were eventually convinced to buy that moved me from the games playing into the games programming. Because mm. although ZX81 is certainly not a games machine, it had a number of games and they were fairly decent. But I, I suddenly took to the idea that programming these was a bit more interesting than just playing them because I could play them as well if I wanted. So I'd then start learning a bit of basic and then a bit of machine code after that. And I was thinking, oh, I actually, I quite like making these games. This is quite fun. And the machine itself was so basic that you you could really learn how to do things really quite quickly. And then it was up to your imagination to do whatever you wanted, if that was a game of poker or a a Space Invaders clone. It was it was a really simple, innocent time. So where did it go from there? So you've got your ZX Spectrum and your ZX81, sorry, and your programming and stuff, your programming in the bedroom. How how did it become, you know, more than that? You know, you're probably still at school at this point. What was the next step from there? Yeah, well, computers was the only subject I was completely enthused about. Mm. There seems to be a natural thing that if you know how to do computers, you're also decent at maths and electronics and all those various science things. So at school, it was always the case of, well, what are you going to do for a proper job? They go, well, I quite like this computer thing. Doesn't that count? No. So it's like, okay, well, I'll take the exams. I'll do my computers. I'll work my way through ZX81s and Spectrums and Dragon 32s and so forth. But eventually it got to the point of, there is a possibility of having a job as a computer type person. Didn't know what what that would take, whether it would be programs or systems or you know just feeding tapes onto spools. So I ended up going to university, figuring that gives me another few years to work out what sort of job I should be doing. Yeah, and you know, university was you know I was doing a one of these computer sciencey degrees, something that's very serious computer sciencey type things, where I learned to do. Uh, program compilers and interpreters and do big clever things with silicon graphics workstations never any real games or anything like that so when i came out of university couldn't get a job doing serious programming work so i ended up moving back home with the parents and Mm. it's like right what do i do because coming from a seaside town not a lot of job for computer programmers who've done a serious computer programming degree Hmm. So mum toddles in with a paper one day saying, you do that computer game thing, don't you? There's a job in the paper you should go for with the underlying implication of there's a job in the paper. We want you out the house, bring some money into the household. <laughs> so it was like, okay, I'll give it a go. I, you know, it's like, well, what do I know about computer games? You know, So you know, what have I got to lose? I, I, I call the number that uh, was in the paper had a whatever it was, five-minute chat, and it's like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll call you back, do a, a mini phone interview thing. And for some reason, they did. And then they called me in for an actual interview, uh, which was behind Trowbridge Estate Agent in Frinton-on-Sea, which is not right. the sort of place you expect a games company because it quite literally it wasn't at that time. The guy behind it, who's um, still a friend of mine, luckily enough, uh, Edward Krabowski, yeah. he had made some games with... Uh, companies like Impressions, which got bought by Sierra at one point, I believe, which were all strategy simulation games. And he was able to write them on his own with a couple of remote artists. And his previous game, which was, I think, the Blue and the Grey, had sold enough copies that he thought, well, maybe I could get a couple of junior programmers in and we can make more games and therefore more money. Because although he can program, he much prefers designing the games to actually typing in all the codes. So he, he... 
you know, uh, the as I say, the advertisements in the newspaper. He found three of us who were decent enough programmers to start work on these games and ended up going to Flinton, which if you've ever been or you've ever heard about it, it was as weird as it sounded. It's it was when when we were there when we started there uh, there was no pub, the residents had banned pubs, they had <laughs> banned fish and chip shops, and they had banned ice creams oh, on the promenade. Oh god, sounds a fun place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so we're there in this back room behind a, a state agent trying to think fun and be fun while everything around us is almost the opposite. Can't even have an ice cream in the office. <laughs> no, well, we were probably allowed them in the office. We could probably yeah. smuggle them in, as long as no one sees us on the street. <laughs> smuggling high-band contraband. What there, boy, what do you got? Is that a cornetto in your pocket? See, I guess, you know, not having, I guess, these distractions, probably in terms of, uh, yeah, I, I guess you didn't have much else to do but work, I guess. So probably in that respect, it kind of made you get your head down and, and do some, you know, hardcore work, I imagine. I mean, what were you kind of working on first then when you went to work for Edward? Well, the, f- the first of our games was called Powerhouse. Uh, this is another one of those sort of also ran titles. It was uh, released by Impressions, which was it was a strategy management game. It was basically sim power in all but name. You would run a energy company and you would build power stations and hydroelectric plants and solar plants to try and basically amass enough energy to sell to customers to make money. And I was doing most of the engineering engine stuff behind that. So graphics routines, interfacing routines, sound routines, things like that. Uh, um, The very first thing I had to work on in my first week was a random world generator. So when you got bored of playing on the real world, trying to build real world nuclear power stations, you could build virtual nuclear power stations on a pretend world, which didn't look much like a planet, to be honest. I was new and I didn't completely know what I was doing. Uh, But I did have a, a slight inclination on the sort of the more techie side because this was one i think this was probably the very first impressions game to be released on cd it was certainly the first one that was commissioned i just think we managed to get it out in time to be the first on market and one of the things to fill up all the space because at this time all, all of ed's previous games had been on one one megabyte floppy or maybe two 1.4 1.4 megabyte floppies or something so we've got this 300 sorry they've got this 650 meg cd to fill up so the idea is let's fill it up with video so we hired an actor to come and sit behind the artist's desk for a day we put a gray screen behind them because we couldn't afford a blue screen or a green screen and we filmed them and hmm. we filmed them as a newscaster presenting news stories about and your powerhouse has done well this year making lots of money from nuclear power and then we hired an artist to remove all of the gray pixels and turn them to blue so we could superimpose images over the top in the game itself. And I was doing all of these sort of low-level engine type of bits for this game. But partway through that, because this was the only game we had, this was the one that Impressions had commissioned after its previous game. At some point during this, and it's probably about three or four months in, we signed the contract for Grand Prix Manager. And because I was only doing these sort of engine backgroundy type tasks, it was the case of, right, well, you as a programmer are the most available right now. You're writing Grand Prix Manager. And it's like, oh, is that anything to do with Jeff Kremen's Grand Prix? Because I knew that from the Amiga days. Mm. I thought, yeah. that's a good game. You know, I enjoyed that one. Is it going to be connected? And they go, yes, it's going to be the sister product. So Grand Prix 2 and Grand Prix Manager 1 were going to be released simultaneously at Christmas. We'd been given a whole load of art files, which was the uh, UI style 
that Jeff was going to be using, so that they looked the same. Uh, but then other than that, we were pretty much free to implement what we saw fit. Now, as history recalls, Jeff never quite got Grand Prix 2 out for that Christmas. So they've got all of this marketing budget where they've allocate, micropros have allocated this amount of money to advertise Grand Prix and Grand Prix Manager, and only one of them is available. So we possibly won a few more sales from that than we would have done otherwise. And it went on to sell quite, quite a few decent copies, enough for them to want to do a second version. I was going to say that's one of our next questions. Do you think, you know, Grand Prix Manager to improve the series? Do you think it helped build the series? Oh, I like to think it does. I'm pretty sure that for the most part, it was hitting a, a niche of a niche. Mm. There's a, you know, there's a, there is a big group of people who like playing management strategy simulations. Yeah. There is a bigger group of people who like driving around in fast cars and going around Grand Prix tracks. Yeah. And similarly, there are a niche of the people who like simulations who will like a simulation about managing that Grand Prix team. Mm. So we are probably already singing to the choir a bit in as much as if you like your Grand Prix and you like your management, you will probably go along and buy this game. And I'm sure some people bought it expecting to be able to drive the cars and got rather disappointed that they couldn't. But, you know, read the back of the box. It was on there. I don't think we, we didn't trick anybody. So I think it. I, I like to think that it certainly added uh, to, to the whole sort of not the oeuvre of management games, but so the idea that, well, Grand Prix is something you can manage. It doesn't have to yeah. be a football manager game, which was pretty much the norm at that time. If you were doing team management, it's always football. Did you manage to get any com- companies with advertising deals involved with Grand Prix Manager? Because as you say, like football manager has all these like partnerships and stuff. Was it the same with Grand Prix Manager or was you just kind of left, you know, you guys were just left to do it yourself and make it yourself? There were certain financial things that went on behind the scenes, uh, but for the most part, they didn't really add to the budget, as you'd kind of hope. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, if the, the main part of it was it came out of the budget. So oh, yeah. it, um, as you no doubt know, that when you do a game that has licensed things in it, like the Williams Formula One team or the FIA uh, licensing body, you have to pay them. Mm. So it was a case of, hey, yes, you're doing the Grand Prix team, and Micropros were the ones who were really in charge of making sure we had got that deal. They said, yes, by by signing up to the FIA, you have the license to use all of the drivers because the drivers signed a contract with the FIA. All the teams, all the advertisers have naturally got that, so you don't have to go to each individual advertiser saying, did you know in 1997 your car has this particular advert on this particular part are we allowed to put your advert on this particular part of the car in this year which would be a nightmare of administration so we were just allowed to use whatever the FIA had already agreed with their sponsors uh, and their teams and their drivers and so forth well obviously when you're doing you know powerhouse and grand prix manager you know those games came out in 1995 and that was a you know a big turning point for pc gaming obviously we went from windows 3.1 to Windows 95. I mean, how did you find kind of developing games that worked on both platforms and was there big differences and how did you manage to kind of support both? Well, we did both by sort of doing a cheat thing. So there was a piece of technology out which was called WinG, uh, Windows Graphics, funnily enough. And WinG eventually became DirectX in a – well, it actually became the game SDK, which became DirectX later on. And this was the very first idea that they, Windows could provide a fast graphics platform for people who wanted to do graphics work. 
So by learning the WinG APIs, we could make it work on Windows 3.1 and 95. Our game after the Grand Prix Managers was Field of Fire. And Field of Fire, we upgraded to 16-bit graphics rather than the 256 uh, palette that we had to use for Grand Prix Manager. But we'd written the code in such a way that if we decided to just up the graphics factor, we could. And it turned out that we didn't need to because we, we couldn't afford the art time to go and do all the graphics again in 16-bit. Mm-hmm. But it, the, the technology was there and available. In fact, the WinG thing is sort of an, an, an amusing case because we this WinG is a library you install for, for, for the people who are young in, in, that, in the podcast world. We had to install stuff. It wasn't a downloadable thing. It came on the disk. You had to install it from the disk. So you had to yeah. supply all the things you needed to make the game run. That's one of those reasons consoles were just so amazing. You know, install, what's that? Well, until they came along with hard drives and a, and a zero-day yeah. update. <laughs> Not that I hate consoles for this reason at all, but oh, boy. Anyway, sorry, uh, digression. I think that's an edit point, don't you? Okay, so where, where was I? Um, oh, yes, WinG, yes, because we, we'd use this WinG technology to make writing games for Windows 3.1 and 95 a very simple proposition. And it, and it made the graphics look a lot better than they would if you were using the standard Windows APIs, because most of the Windows APIs were expecting you to write something like Word or Excel, so you're limited to about 16 colors. So mm. we'd got this nice little graphic look, and we were in the Microprose uh, QA department one day, and they were running XCOM, which was, I can't remember which XCOM it was. There was one of them they were testing at the same time as they were testing one of the Grand Prix managers. And they saw, oh, those graphics, yeah, that, that's using WinG. We could make a really good installer if we used WinG-style graphics on the installer because the Grand Prix Manager installer was white and blue and black. It was the standard Windows color scheme. It looked boring. It looked like you were installing Excel. So the XCOM folk decided, hey, let's use WinG and make a really good-looking, pretty installer. Unfortunately, you need WinG installed before you could run their installer, which installed WinG. (laughs) Of course. And it took them a little while before they realized that it only ever worked on the testers' machines who had WinG installed from our game. <laughs> so everyone else got the boring one. Yeah. So eventually the company t- t- turned into Edcom Limited. When did that change happen and what, what happened next? Well, I suppose Edcom was, Edcom was always the developer mm. uh, from the time that I started to left. So in that effect, it didn't really change. It was always Edward. I mean... It, Edward, Edward had to call it something, so he just called it Edward Krabowski Communications Limited, and it's like, no one's yeah. ever going to remember that. So it was just a shortening thing just for the sake of brevity. Oh, okay. There was no, no big dodgy tax deals or anything going on in that name change. Yeah, nobody bought the company out or anything like that. No. Well, what was your involvement in War Along the Mohawk? Oh, that, that was the one which was, I think, was visually really impressive. There, I was doing engine work again, as I as I did on Powerhouse. So this was uh, the networking component, which was shared with Grand Prix Manager. It was a 16-bit graphic component that was shared with that and an airline tycoon game that never came out. It was all of the sort of low-level engine and core technology components that could be shared. Because at this point, we'd had three games out. Well, th- yes, it would have been about halfway through our third game. So we'd got a reasonable amount of working technology, a decent enough graphics engine, sound engine, networking code, at which point, because I'd done the majority of that work, it just made sense for me to do all of the low-level 
geek stuff and let the gameplay elements over to somebody else, uh, which was Ben for the most part in that uh, project. So from there, you joined Bit Studios. What kind of happened and what was Bit Studios like? Was, you know, a completely different environment? Was it a culture shock for you? Oh, yeah, in, in every which way possible. Because uh, I, I started work on Grand Prix World and it's like a third Grand Prix game? Really? Mm. You know, I, I thought that I'd reached all that I could do at, um, with Grand Prix 2. I mean, I, there were some nice bits in Grand Prix 2. I mean, I like the animation system, for example, which is in Grand Prix 2 and that, um, mostly because I optimized it. We had a – so I'm backtracking very slightly because there's what I hope is an amusing story. Uh, in Grand Prix 2, uh, Grand Prix Manager 2, we had this animation system where we'd play shots of the cars in 3D, just streaming back an animation file, to show them overtaking or spinning out or crossing the finishing line. Mm. But we didn't write it until the last couple of weeks of development. So I'd written this whole thing, and it ran at about two frames a second. And I thought, this is a load of rubbish. Mm. So one of the bright sparks said, why don't we just stick a flashing R at the top of the screen and call it an action replay? No. Genius. This is not a solution. We should make the animation go faster. It's like, well, if you think you can do it, do it. So... Sat in the studio till whatever stupid o'clock, 12-inch pizza, bottle of Coke, and just pounded out the whole version of the animation code in assembler rather than C, and we got it up to 15, 20 frames a second. So it was like that that was one of those mad coding experiences. You think, I like doing this stuff. I like these optimization ideas. I like this low-level engine type things. I don't quite so like writing Grand Prix games again. Yeah. You know, and Grand Prix World, the first version, we had an isometric engine, which was slightly interesting because I had to write an isometric engine for the first time. But it was still not overly interesting. And Bits was saying, come and work on a console PC 3D shooter game. Mm. And it was in London. And it was one of those things of, well, I kind of want to get out of where I am because of the work. I want to get out from where I am because... I've been here for so many years. I want to know what is the big world like. And London seemed like a good place to do it. Yeah. I like sort of being a little bit anonymous some of the time where you don't, you know, you don't know your neighbors or the person who lives across the street and they don't know your business or that stuff. So London seemed like a good place. And back in those times, London actually had a fairly thriving developer scene. Yeah. Nowadays, there's probably almost no one there. And this was before Guildford really took over as the sort of the, the hotspot uh, for game developers in the area. So I, I interviewed for a number of places based around London. And this was the one that said, yes. And it was like, great, I'm moving to London, new town. I'm moving to a new house. Oops. I'm moving to somewhere where no one knows me and I know nobody and a company I don't know and a job I'm not sure I can do. So. <laughs> Everything going on in my head was, I just have to make this work somehow. I got no idea what I was going to be doing other Mm. than something on the game. Because it was that absolutely massive jump, everything was a complete and utter culture shock. There was more than one of us working on the code at any one time. There was more than one artist churning out stuff for us. And the the management was more than one person waddling in at 3 o'clock in the afternoon saying, I've got this idea. Can you see if this can work? Mm. We had design documents and things like that. I mean, even in terms of like, you know, development, was it a massive leap 
and a big change going from developing for Windows to a console like the PlayStation 2. How did you make that adaptation? Oh, yeah, well, that adaptation was enormous to the point of we ended up doing it in two parts, but we did it in two parts unintentionally. Uh, we started by building, which in retrospect is a very silly idea, a Windows game engine for our own internal work and our development, and then a Nintendo 64 game engine for the console, because originally mm. it was only ever going to be out on the Nintendo 64. So we were thinking, right, well, we, we can do it for the Dolphin, and we'd got completely a different code base for the Windows test environment, which we didn't think was overly great. But it was, it was trying to convince anyone that it's worth the time to rewrite it. And we're getting a year, year and a half through this development cycle, by which point it's changed its name from muscle velocity to speed, based on the Sandra Bullock film, and then on to Die Hard. So it's like, if we're doing any more changes, we can't keep going with two separate code bases. We need to do something about this. And inside the company, uh, a couple of other of the developers already started building this engine for their game which was going to be cross-platform. So you'd have almost exactly the same code base on the N64 and on the Windows machines. And at which point, it's like, right, well, in which case, this makes it make it a lot more sense for us to be able to put it on the PS2 as well. We had an exclusivity window with Nintendo for a couple of months, but we knew the market was more likely to be PS2 than it was anything else. So we were able to then to say, right, well, We've got a function in this code that says draw mesh. Let's just rewrite the little bits inside it to draw the PS2 mesh and the jobs are good. And that, that really kind of made it possible to get at that game out for the Xbox, GameCube and uh, PS2 all mm-hmm. within a very short time frame because we are only really rewriting 10,000, 20,000, lines of code, not half a million. And obviously, like you said, then it, you know, the game went through quite a few different titles. It was, you know, potentially based on speed and it became Die Hard Vendetta. Was there any sort of brief with that or was it just, we've got the license for it, it's now a Die Hard game? Was it just, you came in one day and it just changed or was there any sort of kind of like brief from like 20th Century Fox or anything like that? There wasn't any 20th Century Fox brief for the game at the start, uh, but they did have a producer... Mm. later on in the project to sort of guide it and just to make sure we didn't do anything that was against the license. Yeah. So excuse the rustle of paper. I did manage to find an old design doc here, oh, awesome. which is dated the 12th of uh, October. No, not October, September. Um, and it says, what I- uh, t- year 2000, what is the Die Hard game? It's not even called Die Hard 64 or Vendetta at this point. A game with a story. The GameCube Die Hard follows on naturally from the films. It attempts to recreate their atmosphere and style, developing the characters to create a worthy sequel to the existing franchise. The game should be a cinematic experience. But no clue is to exactly what a cinematic experience is. Yeah. Mm. So it started off as being, I won't say a generic shooter, because we were already building a shooter at the time. But there was a slight mentality shift of, well, a first-person shooter of Die Hard is better than a first-person shooter without Die Hard. And at the time, there was inspiration coming in from um, various other games like GoldenEye, which had mm-hmm. done the license thing very well. Yeah. And it was that of, it's the first time they've done a, a Bond license well for whatever it was at that point, 16 years or something. So it's like, oh, yeah, we, we, we've got to we've got to make sure that this can live up to somewhere in that territory. 
and Thief had come along with their two modes. I think it was Thief that had a two mode play where you could be a stealth character. Yeah. And this was one of the bits that sort of tapped in because it was on the whole Die Hard universe. One of the bits in the doc, he says, I'm reading along, uh, McLean is a superhero from the real world. His battles against international terrorism take place against the background of divorce, money worries, and why me anti-heroism. He is not a ruthless killer. So all of the stuff that we had about the first-person shooter idea of you go in, how many enemies you're going to kill on this level, where's the boss level, it had to kind of change because mm-hmm. he's not this ruthless killer kind. So it seemed obvious that we needed something else. And inspired by, as I say, I think inspired by Thief, this idea of having an ability to play in stealth mode where you creep up behind someone, capture them, hold them to ransom essentially against their their cronies was one of those changes that both we and Fox go, yeah, you're right. This is exactly what the Die Hard franchise should be doing in this game, not blindly shooting. So were you a fan of the Die Hard films? Obviously at the time there would have only been the three. You know, had you played any of the classics like Die Hard Arcade or Die Hard Trilogy? Yeah, I'd played Trilogy, and I was yeah. always a fan of the films because there are yeah. only three Die Hard films, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So I had, I had, oh, I already knew that world a bit. So it's like, yeah, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be working on this in some capacity, which is good. Uh, and and we, I think we got a lot of things in there which were right. Mm. There are, so, there was, I wouldn't say there's so many. There is a, at least one or two secret bits in each of them which you just think this should be the main line through the game but there's a secret there's one in one of the levels in fact in a few of the levels there's the mercenary who's taken someone hostage and the idea is you have to either find a way to sneak around the back to take them hostage or you have to be very sharp with your weapon to get the mercenary but not the hostage this is this is one way of playing the game and that's all well and good but in a number of the levels, you can shoot things around. Like you, sh- you can shoot a cash machine in one of the levels, and it spews out cash. And in the process of it spewing out cash, the mercenary gets distracted by all this cash and lets the hostage go. And, in, and if this was done as a film, this is exactly what would be on screen, along with some quip about, hey, you prefer the money or whatever, you know, yeah. uh, whatever John yeah. McClane would say. <laughs> and these things were throughout the game. So it felt that along working with Fox and we actually had some proper Fox screenwriters contributing dialogue into the game to ensure that we kept on this right track. Well, you mentioned about, you know, the, the attempt to make it really cinematic like the movies. I mean, did you want to get Bruce Willis for the voiceovers? Well, it's always nice if you can. We'd already made one mistake with the game. We started with this stand and shooter. And it wasn't a, for a while until anybody would actually pay attention to the fact that Bruce Willis is left-handed. And we were doing <laughs> standard shooters, which were all right-handed. Yeah. So all of a sudden, we've got to add this whole extra feature in the game to switch the hands, which was a nightmare to code. Uh, but since I was the one that had to code it, no one complained except me. So we already had kind of forgone the, we're going to get Bruce, because we knew we probably wouldn't. And obviously, it would be nice, but... The impersonator is reasonably good, and I don't think it loses anything. We got Al, um, Val Johnson, uh, what's his face, to play Al in the game. But yeah. for Bruce Willis, we got his official voiceover dubbing artist person. He's approved approved by Bruce Willis actor, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and we yeah. had to have him in the studio with Bruce Willis's lawyer. Oh, wow. Because Bruce Willis's lawyer doesn't want... 
the the actor does sound too much like Bruce Willis. <laughs> Because, well, reasons, I guess. So every time our actor did a really good take, the the lawyer would just go, nope, nope, can you make it sound less like Bruce, less like Bruce? So basically, we adopted a very simple strategy. If they did a really good take, we would just say to the actor, wasn't very good, didn't sound like Bruce, can you do it again? At which point the lawyer would go, oh, no, that was fine. And conversely, if they did a, a really, you know, completely unspot on take, We'd go, that sounds exactly like Bruce. At which point the lawyer would go, sounds exactly like Bruce. Yeah, you're right. You can't do that one. Do it again. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, my days. That's Hollywood that is for you, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. But it's, it's the thing you have to do when you start building these games. As we found out a bit with Grand Prix Manager, when you start dealing with actual real-world people and entities that have their own individual licensing requirements and their own set of lawyers and legal people you have to start doing these sort of things to try and bend them to your will mm. a little bit mm. you know in grumpy manager we couldn't use Jacques villeneuve because even though he was a formula one driver he'd got a special contract because he was especially famous so we had to call him john newhouse and it was annoying because we'd got sterling moss to do all the voiceovers yeah. But he's got to say John Newhouse instead of Jacques Villeneuve, and it, it just felt a little bit odd. Yeah. Because in that case, it's very obvious. This is Jack, it's like, who's John Newhouse? You've got all these famous racing car drivers and this unknown name. Bruce, yeah, I, I don't think, was quite as bad. I don't think many people – I mean, people know it's not Bruce, but I don't think after the first five minutes you realise it isn't actually Bruce. You just go along <laughs> with it because he's saying the sort of things that Bruce would say in the film. Yeah, and it, it doesn't it doesn't bother you. It's not strikingly bad or anything like that. It, it's it's I hate to use the term, but it's it's good enough. Do you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. yeah. So so at this point, you know, you've got it on the GameCube. What, did did you have any hand in porting it into the PS2 or the Xbox? What was that like? Yeah. So I was doing. A lot of managerial stuff at this time. Yeah. But I was doing a lot of core game things, um, sorting out the structure of how do we score, store all of these bullet hole in the right foot in the, with the right names. Because you've got a gun, the type of bullet hole it makes on wood is different to plaster, and it's a different type mm. of sound. And you need to have some kind of conventions to tie this all together. And when we mm. started branching out into the other platforms, it was the case of we can't rely on a set of hard-coded file names in a file called GameCubeSounds.c. We have to start thinking about this more holistically. Yeah. So I was doing a lot of that organization and then monitoring the PS2 and Xbox game engines. So I was always the lead programmer of both of them, with the low-level code being handled by other people. Xbox, mm. because it's a DirectX equivalent, we, we did that in-house because we'd already got our DirectX engine. PS2, we hired a set of three external developers who had done Doom on the PS2. Or was it Quake? No, it's probably Quake on the PS2, wasn't it? Or Quake 2 on the PS2. One of them. I should have probably researched my own life better than this. So they had <laughs> done this PS2 game engine, and we found them as potential partners. So we I hired them. We just said, okay, we'll work you with you, and I work with them You know, two, three days a week, depending on what was needed to get the game engine running on PS2, doing all the mm. clever PS2 tricks that are necessary, converting things, uh, modifying the tool chain so that the levels are exported correctly because uh, there's a really weird technical thing called endianness. And if there's any programmer listening to this and you haven't squirmed at the phrase endianness, you're not a real programmer, are you? 
Endianus is guaranteed to break all of your game as it did. Our first PS2 version took ages because mm. of this Endian problem. But we worked through it and we, we got there. And it was a very interesting experience to deal with that engine not being done in the same room. Yeah. So I'm used to leading teams where I'm there hands-on every day. I'm looking at the bills. I'm talking to the people. How did you solve that problem? Or are there any problems anyone else is going to have? And all of a sudden, I'm relying on one or two bits a week. Obviously, you know, you like you mentioned GoldenEye, and there's all games like kind of like Max Payne and Time Splitters by this point coming out. And a lot mm. of these games, a lot of these FPS games at the time had a lot of gimmicks. Was bullet time seen as something you could market? You know, you, you said you had kind of had the stealth element in there. Mm-hmm. You know, was there any kind of like pressure from the developers to put any of those kind of gimmicks into the game? Or was it was it straight? It's just going to be the straight shooter and you've got two ways to play it. Oh, there was always the what gimmicks can we find to put in here, I guess. Yeah. Taking the hero time, bullet time thing last, um, mm-hmm. there was there's a sniper rifle in the game, for yeah. example. I've never seen a sniper rifle in Die Hard. No. <laughs> it's kind of expected that a shooter game will have a sniper rifle, so we, we put one in because it will be a nice bit of a gimmick, even though it's never going to happen. There's, in the prison level, there's a poster of a girl on the wall where if you activate the poster, it falls off, and there's a hole behind the wall. Oh, right, yeah. Someone's obviously watched Shawshank over the weekend yeah, and thought, yeah, I've yeah. got an idea. And it was just <laughs> mercifully, mercilessly stolen and stuck in there as yeah. something like, oh, the film fans are going to like this one, you know. Yeah. And and there's, as developers, we always put little in jokes and things in there, and it's always a case of whether it's a good thing or not. You know, we've got an American bar in that game somewhere, and they've got British real ale taps on this American bar, and you look at them, and you just think those taps look exactly the same as the one at the Crown Pub on the corner of Crookerwood Lane, <laughs> which is funny enough where we go to drink, and you just you just know the person who did that where they were last week and what they were thinking. But mm. the, the, the bullet time thing for me is, I think it's that history has recorded it the wrong way round, unfortunately, because we were a bit slow. Because in, uh, whenever it was, about May 99 or something like that, our producer was in LA um, doing some work, work with folks, so, sorting out storylines and levels and all, all the sort of producery type things. And we're sat back in the office still working on the game that whose design might change by the time the producer gets back from LA. While they're over there, as well as doing work stuff, they went out and they saw Star Wars Episode One and The Matrix. Ah. And they said, Episode One, meh, Matrix, whoa. And they got back on whatever it was, the Tuesday or the Wednesday, and they described this bullet time effect that they'd seen in the film. Yeah. And I said... That's an interesting effect. Obviously, the film's not been released here. I don't know what it looks like. But from the description, I can kind of imagine it. So I sat down, and uh, two days later or something, I'd implemented it inside Die Hard. It looked really impressive. And I thought, if the film looks like this but in cinematic, it's going to be amazing. And, and it seemed to work quite well. It, you know, uh, But we had to call it hero mode, not bullet time. Yeah. But it never felt that never felt like a gimmick because we'd, already, we'd done it I know we'd stolen it, same as we'd stolen the, the Shawshank Redemption. I, I love it, though. You, you stole it from somebody's description of a film you hadn't hit seen, though. I love that. Yeah. That's impressive. <laughs> that is really impressive. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it was as simple as that to do, but it wasn't yeah. as simple as that to finish. Mm. Because once you've done that effect, you've then got to go back and change the rest of the game. Because up until that point, all of our bullets were instantaneous. 
Yeah. I mean, it's not that we were that lazy. It's just like, well, if I press the trigger button right now, I'm going to fire a magic invisible hit ray through the scene in 3D space to see what it hits. And that instant, it tells me if I've hit a, uh, an NPC or not. And if I hit an NPC, I start playing the death animation straight away. Well, now when you slow things down to hero time, and it's taking 20 seconds for that bullet to travel, you then have to rewrite your code to actually physically move the bullet through the world. Yeah, it doesn't just appear now. Yeah, you then have to make sure that everything else in the world doesn't move too fast to collide with that bullet before it gets where it was going. So does it essentially, it effectively goes from the bullet triggers, initially it triggers a series of animations and events, but now all of a sudden it has to actually trigger it by travelling through the world that you've made, essentially. Yeah, and you have to make sure that the AI decides to not change animation because if it does, then their head won't be in the same position it was when you pulled the trigger, and the bullet will technically miss, but the bullet time, the hero mode system, thinks it's caused a hit, and it will play a really stupid-looking animation. So almost everything we had in the game needed to be tweaked to support that feature just because it looks cool. Well, obviously here you're working on, you know, very cutting edge, you know, graphical stuff on uh, on these consoles. I mean, if we go forward a few years, in kind of what, what feels like a complete reverse to that, and a really interesting project that you worked on was um, Squibs Arcade. Now, this was a collection of games um, on the iPhone that kind of resembled those um, old Tiger Electronics LCD games. So what was kind of the, the background and the idea of that compilation then? Where did that come from? Oh, that came from the deranged imagination of Paul, myself, and a, a few others that were working at the time. I mean, I'd changed companies a couple of times at this point. Um, and I'd, I'd found someone who was setting up a games company, didn't didn't have a, a lead person to actually go ahead and do the development things. So it's like, I can do that. And in talking about the sort of games we'd be making, he happened to mention that he loved retro. It's like... Well, funny you should say that. I just built an emulator. I love retro. And alongside the normal set of games we were working on, we were working a license for some TV games on uh, GameCube. Uh, sorry, on Wii at the time, sorry. The uh, joint project for on Wii and on the NDS. We ended up just talking about retro games as we did almost every lunchtime and or evening. And he said, wouldn't it be a good idea if we built one of those LCD games? Mm. Like, but for the Wii, that's sort of a bit overkill, isn't it? Really? I mean, I could write one of them on my wristwatch. Think, yeah. Oh no, that would be a good idea. We'll, we'll think of something, because the licensed games were taking a little longer to get built and uh, all approved and that than longer. The company needed a little quick, quick injection of cash, and he and I thought that these sort of old, old style LCD games would be a good thing to do, and it was one of these sort of two days before Christmas thing, he said, well, go away and have a think about it. So I went back home for Christmas, and I'm sitting there in, in bed thinking, do I want to talk to the parents or design a computer game? Talk to the parents, design a computer game. Well, I've done my son duties by talking to the parents. Let's go upstairs and just design a game. So I designed a few of these Squib games because I, I like the old LCD games because they were so simple even I could play them. And I like the idea of injecting some kind of humor into them. I like to think I'm funny, even though most people will tell you I'm not. But it was one of those coming together of those two ideas of, well, how could we make an LCD game funny? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, how do we, how, you know, and, and nowadays everyone's doing it and calling them D-makes. We just thought it was a, a, a subtle satire on the, the AAA titles that are out there. 
when you when you play um, Metal Gear Solid and you spend your entire game in a box. Like, <laughs> can we not present that in some slightly amusing way? Or World of Warcraft is basically war of leveling. We call it lots of leveling in the end, where you just have to press one button repeatedly until you get points. We thought they were simple enough that would be amusing. <laughs> it wouldn't be a high price point. And essentially, it could build one game a day. Uh, the artist could do uh, one set of graphics a day. I could do the code logic one a day. So by the first week of January, we had a first set of compilations. And I'd already got a, an iPhone engine that I'd written that I just slapped in there. So we were actually able to ship out this iPhone game in a week, doing all these little LCD retro games. And, yeah. you know, and it could have run on Wii as well had we had the opportunity um, you know what I found though as well it's because I was interested in playing this um, before we did the interview but I've looked on the app store and it doesn't seem to be there anymore and that kind of that's kind of a downside I guess of these app stores and digital distribution that you've got I think you've got to like constantly update them every like year or something haven't you to stay on there yeah there is something like that I think I think you need the, the um, you need certificates that you have to apply to your game every year to say that I really have signed this and it doesn't have any malware or any rubbish in it and the company did not last as long as perhaps the love of games did. So that kind of relinquished a bit. And I completely agree with you on the, well, if you've got digital distribution, you no longer own the game. You are renting it for as yeah. long as someone else deems it appropriate. You know, it's, it's something I've, I've struggled with because I've done a lot of games from then onwards, which no one can play anymore. You might find a video clip on YouTube, you might hear someone talking about it in a blog, but you can't play them. Mm. The mm. only thing I've managed to do, because of the rights of the games and that, we have, well, I have at least a, a version running on Windows 7 or something that works still. And I did remake one of them in JavaScript once. So they're yeah. not completely gone, but they are pretty much a case of, it's a shame. Well, if you thought, you know, taking it back to... The LCD gaming days was that old school. You went even further than that. Uh, kind of going back to your Dragon 32 days oh, yes. with, um, I love this game as well. So this is ASCII Bird. So this is um, a version of Flappy Bird done in like, you know, the, the most basic graphics that you can get for a game. Um, ASCII and, you know, ANSI we used to get on BBSs back in the day too. So do you find that limitation appealing to make games in? And where did the idea of doing a version of ASCII Bird for the um, 6809 come from? Oh, this was, uh, this is probably one of those cases where I followed Ernest Hemingway's advice. Always do sober what you said you'd do drunk. And I <laughs> think I was probably talking with someone about, because I, I, I go to the various computer meetups. I'm still involved in the computer museum in Cambridge and I go along there and I help the people. And we have a, a 6809 dragon meetup every year. So I was, you know, along there, we're talking about the Dragon and everyone's built their new games for the Dragon. And at this point, I've been out of the games industry proper for a few years. And I still kind of miss it. You know, there's, there's some of the smartest people I've met have been in games development. Some of the best fun times I've had have been game development. But I didn't have really a chance to do anything. So I thought, let's revisit something. And because I'd just recently been to the Dragon meetup, I thought, yeah, I should build something for the Dragon. It was... You know, that, that first big, powerful computer that I had, the 609 processor, it's an amazing piece of work for the time. I thought, I should build something for that. And I thought, well, 
I don't want it to be one of these projects that goes on forever and ever and ever because it's not a commercial thing. It's just a bit of fun, just to remind myself what it was like, just to amuse some friends, basically. So I thought, what's the simplest, funnest game I can think of that might get a wry smile out of someone? And I thought, well, it's Flappy Bird, isn't it? It's it's one of those. It's like Tetris or the any, any of the um, the three match games. It has become one of those. What's the first program you ever write? It's probably something like this nowadays. So mm. it's like, yep, let, let's write a Flappy Bird clone. And because I'm not an artist, as I'm sure people will appreciate if you ever see this online, it's easier to do passable graphics in ASCII than it is in any kind of any high resolution uh, mode. It's, you know, it's one of those changes we had from the ZX81 to the Spectrum. All of a sudden, you can almost get away with it if you're slightly good, but when Spectrum went to Amiga, it was like, no, even the best Spectrum artists, programmer artists had to give up on the code art and then do something, get, get hire someone in essentially that could do proper art. But it's a fun thing to build. Well, if people want to play it, I'll, I'll link up your website as well. There's also um, Antitac there as well in JavaScript that you can play on your website too, um, which is very cool. And also, I mean, I noticed recently you've uh, you recently had a book funded on Unbound. You're doing a book, um, 20 Go To 10 Retro Computing by Numbers. So tell us a bit about this then and what we can expect from the book. Well, I'm hoping you can expect it to be brilliant because otherwise I'm wasting my time writing it really. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. It was. It's. It's the. It's a very long, drawn-out process because it started as just a series of anecdotes, as we've mentioned. You know, going to these computer things. I've always done retro-y type things, but for me, retro is twenty years before my career started, rather than where my career is now, twenty years after I started writing games. So mm. I was thinking, well, my my era of retro is the Spectrums and the Commodores and the Amigas. Everyone's already written everything there is to write about them. There's no point in me writing the same thing. But as someone that comes from a very technical background, it's like, well, there might be things hiding beneath the surface that you just don't realize when you only play the game, some technical thing that is there for a reason that only programmers would know. I thought, well, that's not very interesting to the general public either. But it is a book that I could write, and most other people probably wouldn't bother. And because I'd programmed most of these old machines, I knew a number of anecdotes about how the machines worked and what they did and i ended up just writing down anecdotes when i heard them and it wasn't it turned out that they weren't all about the tech some of them were about spanish import law and things like that so i just ended up writing down all of these notes about interesting anecdotes that happened between sort of 1970 and 1995 in the world of computing well, at the time we called it computing. Now we call it retro computing. I don't know. I don't know what point we allowed to go from computing to retro. How old is retro now? Is it twenty years in the past or something? We, we, we always say twenty years. Yeah, that's kind of our benchmark. Yeah. So what? What back then would have been twenty years before? It's a case of wait. Well, how do the numbers tie all of these old computers together? And sometimes it's coincidence. Sometimes there's a technical reason for them being joined. Sometimes there's just some some set of amusing anecdotes that let them get drawn. So I just started collating them. And I found after a while, lots of these numbers connected to other numbers. And there were more stories that came out as I started speaking to people. So I thought, okay, there's, there's an idea here. And I was a fan of those uh, Choose Your Own Adventure books back when I was a kid. And I've still yeah. got quite a few of the Livingston Fighting Fantasy books as well on my shelf. So I thought, well, what if, because each of these sections is a number, 
why don't I connect all of these sections together like one of these adventure books? So it says, you've just read about the Amstrad 472. If you'd like to read about the other machines that uh, uh, Sugar has done, then go to this page, else go to this one. And because the only program every person has ever written is 10 print, my mate's an idiot, 20 go to 10, it just made sense to format the whole book as if it were this massive computer program where you were running through it, going from one number to another number, learning things about old computers, about old games, and about the numbers that bind them all together. That sounds a really interesting idea. Yeah, that's um, nothing I've seen done before in a book. It's one of those things of it took quite a while for me to realize that all of those elements were there and just pull them. In retrospect, it seems obvious, but it took quite literally years before I noticed that there was a, a thread through that. And, you know, looking at the th- I'm, I'm quite, I've done a few other bits as well. Do you remember those listings you used to type in in magazines that never worked? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm including one of them in the book as well. Oh, cool. It's going to be hidden between various <laughs> pages. So you, if you look for it, you'll find various lines of program code that you've got to go and type in. Oh, that's awesome. That, so really, I mean, the reader's, you know, finding their own path through gaming history. And yeah, it's, it's a really good idea, actually. So when, when's that going to be out then? Have you got any kind of uh, estimated release date or is it kind of when it's done? Yeah, we're, we're expecting it to be out uh, sometime at the beginning of next year. Most yeah. of my work is finished now. I've written most of the book. I've just sent out a thing out earlier today so that all the backers who, you know, because you can still you know pre-order the book, but there's a number of things where some of the backers could have their favorite computer in the book, or they could have a picture of their pimped up Amiga in the book. That's going to take a little while to collate. So we have to wait for them to come back. Then we've got the usual book writing process of editors and proof editors, copy editors, people doing the layout and a whole slew of different things once the actual prose and the text itself has been written. Well, obviously, anyone who's, who's enjoyed our chat today, you know, everyone should go and um, pre-order your book now. I'll link that up right at the top of our show notes so everyone can just jump onto Unbound and you can uh, just pre-order by clicking on there. Good luck with that, Stephen. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your memories with us. And to you, thanks for letting me be here. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.